Welcome to Malignant Glioma Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Tracy Batchelor for an update on clinical research in this field, and he began by providing an overview of key developments over the last few years. The tumor that we deal with most commonly is glioblastoma, and that's been one of the most treatment refractory of all solid tumors. However, within the last five to seven years, we've had a new agent approved for treatment of newly diagnosed glioblastoma, temozolomide, and that drug is used in combination with radiation, and it has extended survival, albeit marginally, but extended survival in patients with glioblastoma. The other development I think that is of interest with respect to temozolomide is the finding that there are molecular markers which are predictive, if you will, of outcome in patients treated with temozolomide. So this MGMT marker, which is rapidly becoming incorporated into the diagnostic workup of a newly diagnosed glioblastoma. So ascertaining MGMT status is becoming increasingly important, certainly for clinical trials, but even in practice now this is being done. And that marker is a marker of resistance or sensitivity to temozolomide. So if the marker, it's an enzyme, so if the enzyme is inactivated, and that happens about 30 to 40% of glioblastoma patients, those patients have a much better outcome when treated with radiation temozolomide compared to those patients who still have the active form of the enzyme. So MGMT analysis is being incorporated into trials and increasingly in practice. And then the third element which is important is really the large number of drugs that are in trial that target angiogenesis. So angiogenesis being a really important target in a tumor like glioblastoma, which is highly vascularized, which has a lot of expression of a vascular endothelial growth factor or VEGF, on the cells and on the tumor cells as well as the endothelial cells. And there are a number of agents that are currently undergoing study that target VEGF. And these have been, I would say, promising in phase two studies, and several of them have now moved on to phase three studies. Let's pick up on each one of those. First, the MGMT. Can you talk a little bit more about what it is and why there might be a relationship between it and, you know, the impact of the therapy? So MGMT stands for O6-methylguanine DNA methyltransferase. It's an enzyme that mediates resistance to alkylating drugs, not just temozolomide, but really any alkylator, for example, BCNU or CCNU. So when the enzyme is present and active, it actually inhibits the ability of temozolomide or these other drugs to kill dividing cells. When the enzyme is inactivated, which again occurs spontaneously about 30 to 40 percent of the time in glioblastoma patients, the temozolomide is able to form these adducts on the DNA and trigger cell killing. So this has been known for, the first publication was about five or six years ago with respect to BCNU and treatment of glioblastoma. And most recently, the MGMT work has come out of the large 
EORTC, NCIC, randomized study of temozolomide and newly diagnosed glioblastoma. This was published in a companion paper in the New England Journal, the same issue that published the clinical results of the pivotal trial of temozolomide. What about, just parenthetically, assays of MGMT in terms of other tumors and alkylating agents? MGMT has not been studied as closely in other solid tumors as it has in glioblastoma. There is a study actually in lymphoma, in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, that demonstrated that MGMT status, whether it was active or inactive, was a powerful prognostic marker in patients with newly diagnosed non-Hodgkin lymphoma, even when controlling for the other known prognostic markers like the IPI score, etc. So it probably extends beyond glioblastoma to other types of tumors, but it's been best studied in glioblastoma patients. Let's talk a little bit about Temidor. Can you review sort of the major clinical trials that have looked at this agent and also what your thoughts are about exactly how it's acting and whether it's just a chemotherapeutic agent or in some way synergizing with the radiation therapy? Well, temozolomide is an oral methylating drug. It was developed, I think, at least with melanoma in mind initially in the early 90s. It was studied, however, in some early glioblastoma trials, phase two trials in recurrent disease. These are patients who had failed radiation and surgery and then had recurrence of their glioblastoma. And in these phase two studies, there was some activity of the drug as measured by some radiographic regression in a small percentage of patients, but also as an extension of time to progression in these patients. And really, based on those phase two studies, this large European-Canadian study was launched in newly diagnosed glioblastoma, where half the patients received temozolomide and radiation, and the other half of the patients just received radiation. And all the patients had some type of surgical procedure prior to that, either a biopsy or a resection. And what was shown in this trial was that the median overall survival was significantly improved in the arm that received temozolomide. Median survival was 14.6 months in the temozolomide radiation arm versus 12.1 months in the radiation alone arm, and that was highly significant. Now, the interesting thing also is that these patients have now been tracked out over four years that were enrolled in this study, and the percentage of patients who are still alive at year two, year three, and year four is significantly better in the temozolomide-treated patients as opposed to the radiation-alone patients. Almost double or triple the percentages alive at two years, three years, and four years. Now, mind you, they're still not great statistics. The four-year survival with temozolomide is on the order of 12 to 13 percent, as opposed to about 3 to 4 percent in the other arm, but clearly showing a sustained benefit even as these patients are tracked for longer periods of time. We don't know really the key time for temozolomide or the key impact of the drug. Is it with radiation? There certainly were some preclinical studies that suggested some additive benefit of temozolomide and radiation in glioma models. So, you know, the radiation and the temozolomide together might be the key intervention that is improved outcomes in these patients, but we just don't know that at this point. How much of the effect do you think may be related to penetration into the brain? Well, the drug has been looked at in normal humans in terms of CSF levels. 
and it turns out roughly 30%, 20, 30 plus percent levels are achieved in the CSF relative to plasma. So some of it can cross intact blood-brain barrier, and there have been some preliminary microdialysis studies where catheters are put into the brain tumor tissue, and an attempt has been to measure temozolomide. It can certainly be measured at cytotoxic concentrations within the tumor tissue itself. So I think it's not, you know, it clearly is getting into the tumor, but it's not thought of as one of the best drugs in terms of blood-brain barrier penetration. But clearly some, you know, it's getting there in a good concentration and it's getting there at a concentration that's cytotoxic. Now, has the drug been studied in patients with brain mats? The drug has been studied in patients with brain mats, largely phase two studies. Some of them have been a mixture of solid tumors, these studies. Others have been focused on particular kinds of tumors like melanoma, which say that they're phase two studies, so one has to take this with a grain of salt, but that the impact there doesn't appear to be as significant as it has been in glioblastoma, at least yet. Any comments about the actual use of the drug, pearls or concerns or experiences? Well, you know, in the randomized trial with over 400 patients, the drug was well tolerated in terms of looking at grade 3 and grade 4 toxicities, low frequencies of grade 3 and 4 toxicities across the board, really, including bone marrow. So it's generally felt to be well tolerated. There are some subsequent studies that have come out that show that the rate of grade 3 and 4 thrombocytopenia might be a bit higher than we initially anticipated. There's one study that shows that about 20% of patients during the daily temozolomide when it's given with radiation for 42 consecutive days, about 20%, one in five patients will develop grade 3 or 4 thrombocytopenia. And mind you that the EORTC study had an age cutoff. So patients up to the age of 70 were included, but patients over the age of 70 were excluded. So there's not an extensive database that's been published in older patients with temozolomide so that the toxicities might be expected to be a bit more there. And, you know, the median age at diagnosis of a glioblastoma in the U.S. is 64. So a lot of patients with glioblastoma are over the age of 70. Any other tissue markers or predictors of response to treatment that look promising or being studied other than MGMT? Well, one, I think interesting development that's really relatively new is the discovery that a subset of patients treated with temozolomide will develop what's called a hypermutator phenotype, which is to say that the number of mutations in the cancer cells are much higher than would be predicted based on a background rate when they're treated with temozolomide. And it turns out that one particular mutation in a gene known as MSH6 might confer uh, resistance to temozolomide. So there are two or three papers, early studies that are out on this. And the basic idea here is that the way that temozolomide works is it triggers multiple cycles of basic scission repair. And with these repetitive cycles being triggered, eventually the cell triggers an apoptotic cascade and the cell dies. The MSH6 mutation probably disrupts this repetitive basic excision repair, and so that trigger for apoptosis is lost and the cells survive. So I think this will be an interesting line of investigation to follow. As I said, it's all relatively new, and it's uncommon 
for us to have paired samples of tumor tissue both before treatment with temozolomide as well as afterwards. But I think MSH6 mutations will be something to look at in the future. Now, when you consider the interdisciplinary team consisting of the neurosurgeon, neurologist, radiation oncologist, and medical oncologist, any sense for sort of the flow of patients in terms of how these four individuals interact with these people as they go through the course of their disease in the community as well as in tertiary centers such as your own? The tertiary centers, of course, I know best because that's where I live. But what happens typically, I'm part of a general hospital. We have a cancer center within a general hospital. So many of our patients are transferred in for neurosurgical procedures. So not an uncommon story is for someone to have a seizure in a community, to go to a local emergency room, have a CAT scan, have a mass discovered on the CAT scan. And many times those patients will then be transferred in for neurosurgical care. And that's how we pick up a lot of our patients. And the way that usually works is the patients are operated on, either they have a biopsy or they have a resection. We're consulted as neuro-oncologists, as are the radiation oncologists, and we pick the patients up after the operation. And we, in conjunction with the radiation oncologist, will administer the temozolomide and the radiation together. And then usually at that point, the neuro-oncologist takes over and follows the patient throughout unless there's a need to come back for additional surgery down the line. I think that the neurologist probably plays more of a supportive role in community medical centers where the neurosurgeon is working more with the radiation oncologist and a medical oncologist in treating the patients because the medical oncologist will be administering the temozolomide. The neurologist will often be asked to advise on elements like seizure control, brain edema, etc., So your usual major interaction with these patients yourselves is in the initial therapy with radiation and temozolomide after surgery. Right. That's our initial interaction. Then we follow our patients, you know, all the way through. Now, I had asked whether there were any patients in your practice that you and I could chat about without mentioning their names or anything that might help understand sort of how, you know, kind of deal with these people on an individual level. Anybody that we could talk about? Yeah, sure. I have a case that just so happens I saw the patient last week. Great just tell you the bit of the history. So this is a 52-year-old man who is a marathon runner, owns his own business, who while running, fortunately with a companion, fell and had a seizure, was taken to an outside hospital, was found to have a large left occipital brain mass, was transferred to our hospital to our neurosurgeon. Our neurosurgeon and I examined the patient. He was in very good shape after his seizure. All he had was a right-sided visual field problem. And we decided, based on the fact that he had that, that we could probably proceed with a gross total resection. And that was achieved. So he had a gross total resection. We confirmed that usually with an MRI within 24, 48 hours after the operation. What goes into the decision about whether or not you're going to go ahead with a total resection? Well, I think that this brings up another point in we'll get away from the patient a little bit. And the question is really, does a gross total resection, is that beneficial for patients with glioblastoma? We have no randomized trials which have answered this question for us, and there are none ongoing. So all of the information we have is retrospective. And with respect to that, the largest series is out of MD Anderson, over 400 patients, and they carefully control for the other known prognostic markers in glioblastoma patients and showed that if the surgeon was able to achieve a gross total resection 
which they define as greater than 98% removal of what you could see on the MRI, that there was a survival advantage, a statistically significant survival advantage. And I think that's been a common observation in smaller studies over time. So without class one evidence, we still are of the opinion that if it can be safely achieved and leave the patient in good neurological condition, a gross total resection is beneficial. Some of the intangible benefits of that is that it reduces mass effect. And by reduction of mass effect, one is able to wean a patient off steroids, which is a major accomplishment. And also, in patients who have very large tumors, removing that mass effect is probably helpful for them in terms of tolerating the radiation, because often the radiation will cause swelling of the tumor. And so by removing mass effect, you're able to get them through that. So our philosophy is that if we look at the scan, we look at the patient, and we determine with our surgeon that close to a gross total resection is feasible, we will do that. And in this particular case, we felt like that a gross total resection was feasible, and he did have a gross total resection. And afterwards, his only deficit, again, was the field defect that he had before surgery going in. You mentioned the steroids. As you sort of look at the long-term course of these patients, how much morbidity do they end up experiencing because of the steroids? How easy or difficult is it to get them off steroids? Well, I think that the morbidity of steroids is profound in patients that are obligated to them. There are just so many potential complications There are psychiatric side effects. There are side effects on weight, on appearance. There are side effects on potentially GI, bone thinning, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a never-ending battle with us is we're trying to find if someone is obligated to steroids, we're constantly trying to chip away at the dose and find that balance between controlling their swelling and neurological symptoms and yet avoiding some of the side effects. But it's a real significant problem in neuro-oncology. What about the gliadol wafer? Is that something you utilize? When do you utilize? Did you consider it in this patient? So the gliadol wafer is a polymer that is biodegradable. It has BCNU within it, and it's usually placed at the time of a resection, and it slowly releases the BCNU over an order of a few weeks. It's local release of chemotherapy. The data supporting it come from, there's a randomized trial in newly diagnosed malignant glioma patients, patients who looked like they had a glioblastoma on an MRI. They went to the operating room. The pathologist made a preliminary diagnosis of glioblastoma, and then they get either you know the gliadel wafer or a placebo polymer. And what the study demonstrated is that the patients who received the Gliadel wafer had a statistically significant improvement in survival, median advantage of about eight weeks. However, when the study was subsequently analyzed and only the glioblastoma patients were assessed, that survival advantage was no longer present. Because remember, these are patients who get enrolled in the study based on the fact that their MRI looks like a glioblastoma. And the frozen section looks like a glioblastoma. But as we all know, the pathologists sometimes will change their mind when the permanent sections are out. So we don't use gliadel wafer that often in our practice. I think, if anything, we use it in very special situations where we know a patient may not be able to tolerate chemotherapy because of systemic chemotherapy, because of 
other bone marrow issues or whatnot. So while we certainly think about it in cases, we typically don't use it in our newly diagnosed patients. Now, getting back to this patient, can you kind of follow up on where he is right now? Right. So he had a gross total resection, was an excellent neurological condition aside from a partial right-sided visual defect after surgery. We allowed him to recover for about four weeks, and then we started him on standard radiation, which in our facility is fractionated radiation. It's 30 fractions, usually two gray per day, 60 gray to the tumor, and about a one and a half centimeter around the edge of the tumor. We give the radiation with daily temozolomide. So he received both temozolomide and radiation in exactly the manner that was analyzed in the EORTC study. He tolerated that fine. At the end of the six-week period, he had a break. And then we do a scan about a month after finishing the radiation. And in his particular case, I received a phone call, actually, before I saw the patient from the radiologist saying, oh, my goodness, you know, your patient has progression, there's nodular enhancement, it looks like it's extended around the edges of the resection cavity. And the patient comes into the office that day and he looks absolutely terrific. He has no symptoms, he's running, he's running his business, he's, you know, really looks great, best he'd looked in a long time. So there was a little bit of a disconnect there and we were left in this situation where many oncologists find themselves, which is after combined chemotherapy and radiation, the scan sometimes will look worse, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's tumor progression because this can be an effect of the chemotherapy and the radiation on the tumor, so-called treatment effect, and this is called pseudoprogression. And it looks exactly like tumor progression on MRI. So what you end up doing, and we did in this particular case, is we did some additional MRI sequences. You can look at things like spectroscopy, You can look at things like cerebral blood volume. And with both of those studies in this case, they were not indicative of tumor. The cerebral blood volume was low, and the choline peak was low in this particular lesion. So we're still left with this conundrum. Does he have progressive disease or does he have pseudoprogression? So we then went to a PET scan. In his case, we had an FDG cranial PET scan it was cold over the area where the tumor had been treated. So again, a bit more evidence that this was pseudoprogression. But I must say that it did look so suspicious and so nodular, and it actually looked like it even involved part of the corpus callosum, which it had not before. So we actually went to biopsy in this case. So he had a series of stereotactic biopsies, and really all of those came back showing treatment effect, no significant tumor. So he was a proven case of pseudoprogression which is now reported anywhere from 20 to 40% of the time after patients receive temozolomide and radiation, patients with glioblastoma. The other interesting angle on this is that, in retrospect, we had done some initial analysis of his tumor tissue, and we discovered that he had the inactive form of MGMT. So his MGMT was what's called methylated. So he had methylated MGMT, which means that the enzyme is inactive. And you might expect his tumor to be more sensitive to treatment. And there was a study just published within the last few months showing a small study, but it showed that of 23 patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma who had methylated MGMT, 21 out of those 23 had pseudoprogression on their MRI. So it's important to keep that in mind when looking at that first scan, and the MGMT status might actually be helpful in that case. 
So this particular patient clearly had pseudoprogression. He went on to receive temozolomide for six months, and he is now almost a year since his diagnosis and is doing very well, has no deficits aside from the vision, and his MRI has gradually improved over time. The contrast enhancement is gradually regressing over time. What's the sort of pathophysiologic explanation for what's going on in terms of the pseudoprogression? Well, they're not, you know, we don't have any systematic tissue studies to know for sure, but it is likely to be akin to what we used to call radiation necrosis, which is a acute injury to blood vessels, to tumor with an inflammatory component. And when you mix all that together in the area of a tumor, you end up seeing contrast enhancement. And, you know, that's, again, why the contrast enhancement will often flare or get worse in these patients after the chemo and the radiation. I'm curious in terms of how you discuss this with your patients. In this situation, was this man out on the Internet getting information, asking you a lot of questions, or more sort of pulling back? You know, like many of our patients, this is a highly motivated gentleman. Again, he owned his own business, ran his own business, and he was smart enough to look into this and wanted information from me on pseudoprogression, and I'm sure vetted this with some others as well. But pseudoprogression is the literature is confusing to professionals. So for patients, it's difficult. In terms of how I handle it is I just point out that you look good. The MRI is not suggestive of tumor at this point. The PET scan is not suggestive of tumor at this point. But if we want to be absolutely sure, we can do a biopsy. A biopsy is a low morbidity procedure, major morbidity less than 5%, mortality less than 1%. So in this case, he and I as a physician-patient unit really agreed that that's what we wanted to do. When you initially met with him, did he ask you specifics about what to expect from the future, and is he asking you about that now? Sure. He and his family, I would categorize him as someone who wants to know, who wants more information rather than not wanting to know. There are some patients who don't want to know the details in the future, but he is someone that does and wants to plan, and he has a lot of reasons to be planning and his professional and his personal life. So, And we still discuss that. He's doing well 10 months out, but what does that mean, Doc? Does that mean is this less likely to come back? Am I out of the woods yet? And, of course, we can't tell him if he's out of the woods at all. If he were to ask you, or maybe he has asked you, what's the chance that I'll be around five years from now and feeling good? Well, I will respond to the question. I think that the honest answer is that the likelihood is you will not be around in five years. And That's based on populations. You're not a population. You're an individual, but it's based on statistics that we have, and we'll do everything we can to make you one of those 10% survivors at five years, but it's a pretty hard reality. Is that the number you would give to someone, 10%? No, I think, well, in his case, remember, he's MGMT methylated, so and he's gotten temozolomide, so if we can extrapolate from this EORTC data set, which is now four years out, and they're 12% survival, that's the number I would quote him. But if you're going to quote simply a population number, it's less than 5% at five years. 
Let's talk a little bit about the issue of angiogenesis, VEGF, and all the work that you've been involved with. I actually interviewed Rakesh Jain not too long ago, actually for our colon cancer series, and some of the work that he's been doing with you. And I know you had the really cool paper at ASCO looking at you know the blood vessels and autopsies. I thought it was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that whole effort and you know sort of where you all are right now with that? So, you know, the pathologists have known for decades, looking at these under the microscope, that these are highly vascularized tumors. They're very bloody. Many of them will spontaneously hemorrhage. They form these very abnormal vascular networks. So that knowledge has been around for quite some time. But more recently, with the advent of modern molecular techniques and whatnot, we've been able to show that the endothelial cells that are formed within glioblastoma, and even some of the tumor cells, express receptors for VEGF. In fact, the level of VEGF receptor expression correlates with the grade of glioma. So the lower the grade of glioma, the less VEGF receptor expression. The higher grade, glioblastoma, the highest level of VEGF receptor expression. So this is an attractive target for all of those reasons. And some of the early studies were with agents that were perhaps not the best anti-angiogenic agents. So we were looking at drugs like thalidomide, for example, where there were some responders, but really disappointing results from these initial trials. But then the newer drugs came into the clinic, antibodies, monoclonal antibodies like bevacizumab, and now small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors, receptor inhibitors. So there have been now a number of trials of bevacizumab, which is the humanized monoclonal antibody to VEGF, binds circulating VEGF and has an anti-VEGF effect that way. There's also another drug that binds VEGF called VEGF-TRAP, which is also being studied in glioblastoma. It actually binds VEGF better than bevacizumab. And then there are the receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which actually work by binding to receptor and preventing interaction of the ligand with receptor. So there are a whole host of those drugs. So the first trial, really, the first indication that these class of agents might have some effect was a report by Carolyn Avance-Stark, where she gave several glioblastoma patients who had failed temozolomide and radiation bevacizumab, and a chemo drug known as arenatecan, which is an intravenous topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. And that combination was a combination used in colorectal cancer. So when she did this, she showed by MRI that several of the tumors actually became smaller. And she presented this at a scientific meeting, and shortly thereafter, a number of phase 2 trials were launched of bevacizumab and arenatecan. Phase 2 paper from North Carolina came out showing that the proportion of patients who had tumor regression of 50% or more was quite high with this combination. About 50% of patients had regression of their tumor. And there appeared to be some extension of progression-free survival with bevacizumab and arenatecan. And then that subsequently became a randomized phase two trial, the final results of which have not been published yet, but have been presented at scientific meetings showing that Still, patients who receive bevacizumab have about a 30 to 40% response proportion, shrinkage of their tumor, and there appears to be a significant extension of progression-free survival. So that's where we're left with bevacizumab, and there are a number of 
trials that have been proposed, including a randomized trial in newly diagnosed glioblastoma in combination with temozolomide and radiation, as well as another randomized trial at recurrence, recurrent glioblastoma. So the results have been promising, probably just as promising as anything we've seen to date in glioblastoma with bevacizumab. And the other approach here is the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So a number of those, serafinib, sunitinib, sidirinib, are currently in clinical trials for glioblastoma. I can tell you a little bit about sidirinib since we did this study here in Boston. Sidirinib, again, is a small molecule, a receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It inhibits all VEGF receptors. It also has some inhibition of platelet-derived growth factor receptor and CKIT as targets. We got the drug through the NCI, and we conducted an NCI-sponsored study in recurrent glioblastoma here in Boston where we gave the drug alone. We did not give it with any chemotherapy. These patients had failed radiation and temozolomide. They had growing glioblastoma. We administered the drug. It's oral. You take it every day, once a day. And we observed several things. Number one is that, like bevacizumab, there was a high proportion of patients who had regression of their contrast-enhancing tumor, over 50%. In addition, we showed that compared to historical controls, that these patients had extension of their progression-free survival. So a benchmark metric that we use in recurrent glioblastoma is that about 15% of patients with marginally effective drugs will have no disease progression at six months. So 15% without disease progression at six months. In the sidirinib trial, we showed that that was 26%. So again, it's a historical comparison, but that in conjunction with the radiographic response was promising. So those were our observations. Based on those results, there is now a randomized phase 3 trial in recurrent glioblastoma, patients who failed radiation temozolomide, who can be randomized to one of three arms. One arm is sidirinib alone just like the study I just described to you that we did. The other arm is sidirinib and chemotherapy. And the standard chemotherapy we use is an oral alkylating drug, lomustine. And the third arm is the standard chemotherapy alone. So the goal of this trial, this randomized phase three trial, is to determine if either of the sidirinib arms, either alone or with chemotherapy, is superior to standard chemotherapy and recurrent glioblastoma. And that study has just started enrollment two weeks ago. We have a a cruel goal of 300 patients in Europe, North America, and Australia. So, you know, we hope that will accrue rapidly. We hope to have an answer in about two years from that study. We've also taken sidirinib and received a grant from the NCI to study it in newly diagnosed glioblastomas, where we're combining it again with temozolomide and radiation. So that's where we've taken that drug. So bevacizumab will be in phase three trials for recurrent glioblastoma, newly diagnosed glioblastoma. Sidirinib is currently in a phase three trial for recurrent glioblastoma. What about the combination? Of sidirinib and bevacizumab? Mm -hmm. We haven't done that yet. There has been some interest in this strategy of, on the one hand, attacking the ligand or ligand sequestration plus blocking the receptor. I think one of the challenges there has been toxicity. And some of these combinations of bevacizumab with other tyrosine kinase inhibitors have resulted in significant toxicity. So we're a little gun-shy about that. I don't think that that 
you know, it's not that we won't do something along these lines, but we worry about the toxicity of that combination. I guess where I've heard about it is Zev and Sunitinib and renal. Right. And I think those patients ended up with some type of microangiopathic anemia that was unexpected. And remember that there is overlapping toxicity of BEV and a TKI with respect to hypertension, diarrhea, fatigue. You had an abstract at ASCO with Dr. Jane looking at patients who'd received sidirinib and looking at their blood vessels? Right. So this was the, we had really two parts of the study that I told you about, our phase two study and recurrent glioblastoma. One was the clinical study, which I mentioned the results. The other part, which was really most of the funding from NCI, was the correlative science. And we really were using, we were really designed some of these experiments, if you will, around the preclinical hypothesis that Dr. Jane has, that these agents will change the morphology and physiology of these tumor blood vessels. So the idea here, again, is that VEGF-driven angiogenesis results in this very abnormal vascular network, that the blood vessels are dilated, they are leaky, that this is an inefficient system for delivering a therapeutic into the bed of a tumor. And it also is a system that contributes to the hypoxic tumor microenvironment because of limited oxygen delivery throughout the tumor. So the notion here is that if you can somehow transform those vessels into something approximating normal vasculature, that you'll get better oxygen delivery, you'll lower the hypoxic fraction of the tumor, and that in theory you'll get better delivery of a chemotherapeutic into the tumor. So this has been shown, I think, convincingly in preclinical models. And what we aimed to do in our trial was to really look to see if we could pick up with imaging, with MRI, changes in these blood vessels. Because unlike other types of tumors, we are not going to be able to do serial biopsies for obvious reasons in patients with brain tumors. So we used a number of MRI techniques. We used a technique that can look at vessel diameter. This is a combination of a gradient and spin echo techniques in MRI. We also looked at a MRI technique that can look at permeability or leakiness of the vessels. And what we showed was by looking at both of those that interestingly after a single dose of sidirinib, so within 24 hours of that first dose, you could detect on MRI a rapid biological effect on the tumor vasculature. The vessel permeability goes down and the vessel diameter goes down. So these begin to, again, if you will, approximate normal vessels. And we determined that that effect in aggregate for all 31 patients, on average, was maintained for about 28 days. And then after 28 days, you begin to see the permeability go up again and the vessel diameter go up again. So in parallel to what has been observed in animals, where these agents have a temporary effect on vasculature, it's known as the normalization window, where those vessels are transiently normalized. We made observations in this study that were at least consistent with that normalization hypothesis. Have the same kind of studies been done with BEV? There have been studies done with BEV with respect to permeability. And actually, some of this data was presented at ASCO earlier this year. And also with BEV, you see a rapid effect on permeability in these blood vessels. I'm not aware of any specific studies on vessel diameter with bevacizumab. What about the issue of the use of BEV? You mentioned that it's being looked at in phase three studies. Is there a role in your point of view 
assuming you know it can be paid for in a non-protocol setting right now? Well, you know, I would certainly say that it is not, as of today, it is not FDA approved for any type of brain tumor. And these studies need to be done to determine whether it will be approved. With that said, there's a lot of excitement about this class of agents in glioblastoma. So agents that are approved for other indications like serafinib, sunitinib, and bevacizumab are finding some use among practitioners in neuro-oncology. Our philosophy, again, is to really emphasize well-conducted clinical trials. So if a patient has recurrence and failure, that will be clearly part of what we're going to present to a patient. Now, if a patient is not eligible for a clinical trial or it's just not practical for other reasons, we will certainly consider using bevacizumab. It's unclear to me at this point, you know, whether the arena-tecan really needs to be included with bevacizumab, we know as a single agent that arena-tecan has a very low response rate in glioblastoma, under 10%. There are two or three studies that have been done of arena-tecan alone in recurrent glioblastoma, so it was felt to be a relatively inactive agent. However, again, there may be some synergy when it's used with bevacizumab, so we just don't know that yet. But we certainly do consider the use either of bevacizumab alone or bevacizumab with arena-tecan. Kind of getting back to the normalization hypothesis, would that cause you to favor using the arena-tecan? Well, if that truly holds in humans, one would predict that if you're able to normalize the vessels, lower the hypoxic fraction, deliver more arena-tecan into the tumor, there's a logical story there, I think. Anything that's kind of come up in the last few years to explain why this tumor usually doesn't metastasize outside the brain? Well, it's interesting. I think that it does metastasize outside the brain. It's just that it's rare. We have seen and it's reported that this tumor can basically metastasize to lung, to bone, to other organs. So it can occur. It's just rare. So there are a number of possibilities there. I think the two big ones would be that there is some intrinsic biological reason why glioblastoma does not commonly metastasize outside of the brain? Or is it the fact that it has been such a rapidly fatal disease when it grows in the brain that we are not able to see what the natural history of glioblastoma would be? I think those are two real possibilities. So it'd be interesting to see that. Now, you probably know that there are technologies now for detecting very small numbers of circulating tumor cells. This technology right now applies only to carcinomas. And we don't yet have a system for detecting an antigen that could pick up circulating glioma cells. But we have an ongoing project where we're trying to do just that and trying to develop a chip with these markers on the chip that could pick up very small numbers of circulating glioblastoma cells. I think that'll be a very interesting study to do. Is that the same project that Tom Lynch is involved with? Yes. So, you know, they can detect circulating non-small cell lung carcinoma cells. They can even do genetics on those cells. Right, right. So the idea is, again, using a different set of markers on this chip, will we be able to pick up glioblastoma? And I hope we'll know that within the next year. That'll be exciting. I guess you had the big New England Journal paper on that not too long ago. Right. What are some of the other research strategies being looked at in clinical trials right now that you're most excited about, and also some of the translational work that's going on that you're most excited about? 
Well, I think angiogenesis is a big one, and it's not restricted to bevacizumab. There are other strategies, and you know, angiogenesis has been our primary interest. One of the interesting things about that before I leave it is that angiogenesis is, there are multiple pathways to angiogenesis. There are redundancies built into the system. And so there are opportunities to look at combination strategies so that we're not just targeting VEGF, but that we're also targeting other pathways that we know are pro-angiogenic, which in fact might be upregulated once we block VEGF. For example, FGF. We showed in our glioblastoma study that when you could detect circulating FGF, and when FGF levels go up, the scans start to look worse. And what is Patients FGF? Patients begin to progress. What is FGF? It's a fibroblast growth factor, basic fibroblast growth factor. And how does it tie in in terms of the pathways with VEGF? You know, there's an independent FGF pathway that is proangiogenic. There are several of these. So one of the interests we've had is to look at agents that might hit both pathways. And this is not only true for FGF. There are other molecules that could be targeted, such as stromal cell-derived factor or SDF, tie to angiopoietin pathway. There are these redundant pathways, and I think in angiogenesis, one of the challenges will be that maybe we'll make some progress with VEGF inhibitors, but we might have to look to next-generation drugs that target not only VEGF but other pathways. So that's an interesting evolving story, I think, in angiogenesis. We're also interested in looking at some of the growth factor receptor inhibitors. For example, we know that epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFRs, is an important signaling pathway in glioblastoma, just like it is in non-small cell lung carcinoma and other solid tumors. The trials that have been done, all phase twos up to this point, have really been a bit disappointing in terms of responses. And even trying to correlate responses, which are infrequent, with amplification of EGFR on tumor cells or EGFR expression on tumor cells are even specific mutations. So there is this EGFR V3 deletion mutant. And there was a paper in the New England Journal within the last year and a half which suggested that the presence of this mutation really did predict uh, response to EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And I guess this is completely different than the one that's been seen. Again, Tom was very involved with that in lung cancer. Right. So it is a different mutation. And subsequent to that report in the New England Journal, others have looked at response versus non-response to some of these EGFR inhibitors like erlotinib, gefitinib, and have not really found this correlation with V3 mutation and response. But there are a lot of possible explanations for that. And there are newer generation EGFR receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors on the horizon. So some of the irreversible EGFR TKIs are in trials for other solid tumors, but are beginning to enter trials in glioblastoma. So we're interested in that and interested in trying to develop some of these genotype-specific trials so that, for example, all newly diagnosed glioblastomas undergo analysis for EGFR amplification, if they have it, and undergo analysis for the V3 mutation. So you identify up front a pool of patients so that when there's recurrence down the line, you can draw from that pool genotype-specific trial and study some of these irreversible tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So we've been interested in that approach as well. In terms of some of the other approaches, 
you know, unfortunately, higher doses of radiation have not really been beneficial. They come with higher risks of necrosis. There are approaches that might be more beneficial in terms of sparing normal brain and toxicity from radiation, for example, proton therapy, which enables one to really minimize the dose of radiation that nervous tissue outside the tumor area is exposed to. So that could be important. In proton facilities, there are some new ones online, coming online, so that'll be something that will be hopefully explored in the future. In terms of surgical therapies, you know, there are a lot of approaches in terms of putting catheters into tumors at the time of the operation and infusing various agents through those catheters. This is the technique known as convection-enhanced delivery, positive pressure, infusion of toxins, for example, diphtheria toxin, immunotoxins, into the tumor to determine if you can get more cytotoxicity along the edges of the tumor. Unfortunately, two randomized trials of that approach have not shown any benefit for glioblastoma patients. But again, it might be that you know, the wrong toxins were chosen. So that's a strategy that's also being assessed in terms of surgical therapies. And then there are a number of vaccine approaches, immunotherapies for glioblastoma. There's a vaccine therapy that's aimed at this V3 mutation. So patients who have the V3 mutation are vaccinated. It's a protein or peptide vaccine the idea being that you generate an intrinsic immune response aimed at those V3 mutated glioblastoma cells. So there's a randomized trial with that approach ongoing right now. So there are a whole host of things. Looking into your crystal ball, maybe three or four or five years from now, what do you think they'll be using to treat patients off study that they're not using right now, if anything? Well, if the horizon, I think, is three to five years, I think the most obvious answer is that we will probably be using some type of anti-VEGF approach, if I had to predict today. And that might be actually even up front in newly diagnosed patients where it's being combined with our standard surgery, radiation timidar, and some type of anti-VEGF therapy. Do you think we'll have any predictors of response by then? Well, this is a big area. We didn't get to translational research, but it's a big area of investigation. I think that we have, unfortunately, with the VEGF inhibitors, there are no validated tissue markers or even circulating markers right now that predict response or resistance. There are some interesting imaging markers that might predict response to these agents but none of them have been validated. These include PET approaches and MRI approaches that are usually done very early after the drugs are started, within a week or two doing an imaging study and based on that imaging study then looking at outcomes. And a method known as FLT-PET looks promising in that regard in terms of response to bevacizumab. We've shown that a MRI sequence known as the K-trans or permeability sequence looked at as early as one day after starting a VEGF TKI can be predictive of response and better survival. In renal cell carcinomas, hypertension is a good surrogate marker of activity in some of the TKIs. We are looking at that with sidernib in our data set. Sidernib comes with a high proportion 
of hypertension. So we're looking to see if that might be a marker of response in our patients as well, but we haven't found that yet.